It is wonderful to be with you again uh, as, we, as we turn to God's Word and as we uh, seek to hear from Him and what He has to teach us this morning. Um, and as we do that, as Jonathan has mentioned earlier in the service, we're going to be continuing on in our series in Joshua. Um, but uh, before we get to our passage for today, uh, let me ask you a couple of questions. I wonder, I wonder what your memory's like. Um, my, my memory is sketchy at best, uh, terrible if I'm honest. Um, and it's, it's a weird memory, though. I don't know if anyone struggles with this kind of thing. So I, I struggle to remember simple things like what we need from the shop. Uh, I might come back with three out of the seven things that we actually needed. Um, yet, number plates from the car, every car that I've ever driven is fine, locked in here, solid, ready to go. Same with addresses, which, which, which is helpful when you're filling in out forms. But for day-to-day life, it makes things a real struggle. Um, but I wonder what your memory's like. Uh, I, wonder, I wonder if you're like me, or maybe you've got a photographic memory. You can remember everything about everything. Uh, or maybe you're like some people that we know and love and keep a spreadsheet of every life event so that you know and can remember and can recall and can think through. But, but I wonder what your memory's like. And if I can take that question one step further, I wonder what your spiritual memory is like. Uh, and what I mean by that is, how good are you at, at recalling and celebrating what you have learned from God, what he has done in your life. How good is your spiritual memory? See, remembering the works of God has has a common theme throughout Scripture. God tells his people regularly to remember what he's taught them, to remember what he's done. And indeed, we see it throughout the Psalms, particularly as one place in which we see it, but it's time and time again throughout or throughout God's word. It's why God commands his people to remember and celebrate festivals and feasts. It's so that they can remember what he's taught them and what he's done. It's why he commands them to gather together, to hear from his word, to read the commands, to meditate on them day and night. It's so that they can remember and recount his faithfulness to one another. It's why Jesus then gave us this meal when he, with his followers, gave them this meal. Why? So they would remember. Remember his sacrifice. And in the passage we're going to look at today in the book of Joshua, we see God doing something remarkable, something miraculous, something only God could do. And yet, as we'll read through this passage, it it seems that more time is, is taken up within the passage explaining how and why the people should remember this event, as well as obviously telling us the details of what took place, how it took place, and why it took place But there's a lot of emphasis put on the people's remembrance of this, passing it on to the generations that will follow. And it seems this regular pattern that God gives physical reminders, whether that's something in the calendar or something actually physical that they can look at and see, to remember what he's done and why he's done it and what he is teaching them through it. And so whether it is the the Lord's Supper, as we'll come to celebrate later, or the big pile of stones that we'll see today in Joshua 3 and 4, The point is the same. God wants us to remember and remember with a purpose. It's not just remembering the the chronological or historical details of what happened. Yes, that is part of it. Absolutely. We need to remember what God said, when he said it, what he did, why he did it. But it's remembering so that we can recall his goodness, his faithfulness, his unchanging word. And so it's not just about remembering what has happened or even how it happened, although that's, of course, important. It is also about remembering why it happened. What is God teaching us through this event that he is wanting us to mark? And that's certainly the case that we'll witness in these chapters today. We will see what God did. We will see how he did it. And we will importantly see why he did it and why he's telling the people to remember. 
Um, but let's quickly recap, just in case, um, or to bring everyone up to speed with where we are in the book of Joshua. We're studying this book, which is a book primarily about God. It's about his activity with his people as he leads his people into the land he promised to give them. And so this is a book about God. And although the people had spent centuries away from this land, mostly in slavery in Egypt, God rescued them from that land. A few decades then they spent in the desert as as God continued to work in them and tried to work through the people's unfaithfulness. And then Joshua's account begins. The The people are on the cusp of entering this land that he had promised. And so, yes, there are historical facts here, but as we said back in week one, there are facts remembered with a purpose. And so God, Joshua, the book of Joshua tells us what God did and also helps us to see why he did it and what we can learn from it. And so these historical records actually help us to see the unbreakable promises of God. That's the common theme, one of the common themes throughout the book of Joshua. We see God's faithfulness shining brightly from these pages. God promised the land, here he is delivering it. God promised his presence, we see it time and time again. And so Joshua is an account of the God who makes and keeps his promises because God's word is unbreakable. And today we'll we'll see the people crossing the Jordan River. They set their foot on the land that God had given them. Uh, And this story actually takes chapters 3 and 4 to retell. And we're going to read the whole of the two chapters I debated whether we should do that or not, but this is God's word. It's more important that we hear his words than what I have to say. So let's think about God's word as we read these two chapters. But I will say as we look at this narrative, the narrative can feel a little confusing at times. There's a jumping back and forth at times. There's a telling of one thing, a moving on, and then a going back to tell us about that event again. And so it's good to see the whole thing. It is also much better that we see the whole thing rather than me just picking verses throughout. Um, But let's have a look at Joshua 3 and 4. Uh, I'm aware of the time that it'll take to read, but please do uh, follow along with me if you have a copy of God's Word. Um, If you don't have a physical copy or a digital copy of God's Word, please lift one of the red chair Bibles that should be around you, hopefully within reach, um, and read along with me as we see God's Word from uh, Joshua 3 and 4. Early in the morning... Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. Isn't that an interesting phrase? You've never been this way before, the land that God is bringing you into, and now you're going to follow it. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the ark of the covenant, When you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, 
Its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. While the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests were standing, and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to their camp, where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Now the priests who carried the Ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed, the ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. The men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over ready for battle in front of the Israelites, as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. That day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him all the days of his life, just as they had stood in awe of Moses. Then the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant law to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. On the 10th day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the people of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. I'm going to read one more verse. Now, when, the Amorite, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan River for, um, before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage 
to face the Israelites. It's an incredible account of what we see. We see what happened. The people crossed the Jordan. We see how it happened. God made it happen. And we see why it happened, that the people would know God's power and that his fame would spread throughout the world. Let's pray as we consider those three things in more depth. Father, we thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, that you continue to speak to us through your word. And I pray that this morning we would hear what you have to say to us. We praise you, Father, for your mighty acts as we've just read. We thank you, God, that you are still active, that you are still powerful. You are still, as we've sung, sovereign over us. And so I pray that you would build our faith. You would help us to see the might that you carry and the acts that you then call us to do in obedience to your power. So be with us, we pray, as we study your word. And it's in your name we ask. Amen. Amen. So let's begin by considering what has happened. Well, in simple terms, chapters 3 and 4 of Joshua make it clear they cross the river. That's the central thing. They cross the Jordan. The people move along. And, and that's an amazing feat. And just like we uh, read from Joshua speaking to the people at the end of chapter 4, it's reminiscent of the crossing of the Red Sea, isn't it? And it's reminiscent of that because Joshua makes it clear that once again, this is only something that God could have done. The people had no power to do this. Only God could have done this. And so we see right from what he said in chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. And and just so that you know, I I will use the screen a little more than normal today, just as we jump around this narrative. But please do keep your Bibles open. And so Joshua says to the people at chapter 4, verse 23, The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea. When he dried it up before us until we had all crossed over, he did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know. So what happened? The Lord dried up the Jordan. That's what happened. The Lord did something astounding. He dried up the river so that the people could cross. And we need to appreciate the the, the truly miraculous nature of that event because the Jordan was no small obstacle before the people. Yes, this long and winding river had sections of it that were much easier to cross We saw even last week in in chapter 2 that the the spies came back to the fords of the Jordan. There were areas of this river that were easier to cross, but there were also areas that were wide, that were expansive. And particularly, as we're told from chapter 4, verse 15, the Jordan is at flood stage at all the harvest. So this, the Jordan, as the ESV actually says, has burst its banks, its banks overflowed. And so this was no small little brook that stood in front of the people. This was a vast expanse of water. And so for it to be dried up before the people, this is surely something only God could have done. God intervenes. And he intervenes where there seems to be no way. Into this seemingly impossible situation, God acts. He doesn't even just show the way, he makes the way where there seemed not to be one. And so the people cross the Jordan. That is what's happened, yes. But they cross it because of what God has done. God split the waters. God dried up the river. God guided the people on. God had promised the land that they were crossing the the river to go to. God had promised his presence with them. This is another record of the wonderful, unbreakable promises of the Lord. This was a record of the immensity of what God had done to care for his people, to provide for his people, that he had showed himself to be powerful, to be faithful as his people crossed the Jordan. What happened? In in essence, God showed up powerfully. Well, then how did it happen? 
If all of this took place, the Jordan River is crossed. How did that happen? Well, this is where actually reading, I think, the whole text is really helpful for us. Because hopefully as we read through those, those verses, you were able to see and spot the repetition of the, the mentioning of the ark. Whether it's the ark of the Lord, the ark of the covenant, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The ark is mentioned, I counted, about 20 times in these two chapters. Clearly the ark plays this significant role, but, but why? why? Why is that important? Well, this is where it's helpful to understand why the ark was significant for the people. The Ark of the Covenant was, was primarily the, the physical representation the people had of the presence of God with them. It was, a, it was a wooden box covered with gold, very ornately designed and very specifically instructed on how it should be constructed by God, as we'll see in Exodus 25. Inside this box are the tablets of stone that the Lord had given the commandments to Moses on. This was the centerpiece of the tabernacle, which, of course, was the, the portable tent that the Israelites had been instructed to create as they had journeyed around the wilderness so they could worship Yahweh, the Lord, their God. And so in Exodus 25, God gives the instructions of what the ark should look like. And then in Exodus 37, we see it being built. But as God is given the instructions for the, for the making of the ark, we see him say this in Exodus 25:22. There above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant Law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. And so this is not just a piece of tabernacle furniture. This is a representation of the very presence of God with his people. And this is where they were to hear from him. And so the prevalence of the Ark in these chapters tell us something Again, about how the crossing takes place. It's simply a reinstatement of the fact that only God's presence made this happen. It's one of the reasons why actually uh, most commentators are, think that the, the, the people are told to keep that distance from the ark. Uh, there's, there may well be a, a reference here to what we see later in Second Samuel 6 where the, um, where the people where someone comes too close to the holiness of the ark and they're actually struck down because they touch it when they're instructed not to. And so some people think maybe that's why this is a holy instrument that they shouldn't go near. A lot of people are actually in agreement that this is just so the people could see the ark from wherever they were, they could see it. They were far enough away that they could see. Therefore, as they crossed the Jordan, they could be assured that Yahweh is still with us. And so the presence of God is what makes this miracle happen. However, as we think about how the crossing takes place, and without in any way diminishing the, the, the supremacy of God in this activity, the centrality of Yahweh making this happen, God also makes it clear that his people are to act as he leads them. See, they're not, they're not passively spectating as he piles up the waters in a heap and transports them across the Jordan. No, the people are to go. The people are to walk. And I think this is most clearly seen when we consider the role that the Levitical priests have to pray, they're, play. They're, they're the ones carrying the ark, and they're to carry it all the way to the river. In fact, they're to carry it until they are in the river, until their feet touch the river. And I find that astounding. They are to go, they are to keep walking, even while the water's still flowing, they are to walk. And once they follow God's direction in complete obedience, then the water will stop. We see this primarily in chapter 3, verse 13. If I start reading there, 
chapter 3, verse 13. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. And then if we skip down to halfway through verse 15, yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Araba was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho and the priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by on dry ground. See, this is remarkable. The feet of the priests touched the water's edge and then the water stopped. The ground becomes dry. The water's piled up at a town called Adam, which is about 18, 19 miles upstream. Downstream flow stops and the ground is dry and the people walk. Surely it's only God who can do something like this. Yet he does it when the feet of the priests touch the water. And doesn't this show that, that the people must take obedient action to see God's mighty hand at work? The, the people must take obedient action to see God's hand at work. Yes, he's not curtailed by them, but he proves himself in this occasion, he proves himself mightily when he sees their faithful response to him. And we see it again on the other side as, as they, the whole nation crossed the river. And then in verse 18 of chapter 4, the priests came up out of the river carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. No sooner, no sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to its place and ran at flood stages before. You see, God leads the people. The people follow and God acts in miraculous ways. And some of us might know the, the tension that this brings to our minds and our hearts. We, we sense God might be leading us somewhere, yet, yet some of us often wait until more of the path becomes clear before we decide to take a step. Or perhaps we're prone to acting first and hoping God removes obstacles or opens doors before us because we're stepping in faith. And I don't think either of those situations are necessarily wrong. All I'm saying is in this occasion, in Joshua 3 and 4, what we see is God shows the next step and the people go. He promised the land to them. The people knew that. He promised to be with them. The people knew that. He promised that he would make a way through the Jordan. But it's, the priests still had to go and get their toes wet. And so this isn't blind faith. Because the people knew that God had given them the next step. But it was great faith great faith because he hadn't totally explained to them the whole way that they would be taken. So it's not blind faith because he said, go to the Jordan. But it's also not. He didn't explain how the next conquest would work as they reached the Jordan. He didn't explain the whole path to them. He just commanded obedience for the next thing. And I wonder if that rings true for anyone here, that often we, we, we wait for God to make his path abundantly clear before we step. And yet it seems here that he only asks us to trust him for the next step that he's made clear. David Jackman is very helpfully in challenge and he stated it like this. It is enough to see the next step and to trust God for what we cannot see yet. And the implication being we must never give up what we do not know 
Sorry, we must never give up what we do know because of what we don't. I find that so challenging. We know that God is leading us somewhere, but we don't know exactly where. So because of what we don't know, sometimes we don't take the next step that we know he has called us to. But perhaps if we step in faith and in obedience to where we know he has called us to, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we just run off at random. This is a very definite leading of the Lord to say, go into the Jordan. And the people go and they see God do mighty things. See, they knew that God had promised this land. They knew that he had promised his presence. And they knew, that's what they knew. And because of what they knew about God's unbreakable promises, even if they didn't know exactly how it was going to work out, they were, they were confident to step out in faith. And so what had happened? The, the people crossed the river. God did something miraculous. How did it happen? Well, God did it. He worked as the people stepped out in obedience to his leading. And so let's briefly consider why all this happened. Well, because of the, the very obvious reason of getting the people across into the land that God had promised to them, there, there's a deeper purpose at play. And, and Joshua makes it clear in at least two occasions. Firstly, in verse 10 of chapter 3, Joshua says, This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the people of the land. In other words, God will do this miraculous thing among you and before you so that he will then build your trust in what he will do in the future. He'll do this amazing thing right now in the present so that you will trust him for the greater thing in the future. If this God can pile the river up into a heap, this all same all-powerful God will surely wipe out your enemies who stand before you. In other words, in this occasion, for God's actions for his people were to build faith in his people. So God acts in a way that it is incredibly for his people, but it is also then building faith in his people. And we see this again in chapter 4, verse 24 and 25 that we've already read. That God's purpose is yes for his people, but even goes beyond that. And so in chapter 4, 24 and 25, he did this, as Joshua speaking of God, he did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. And so, yes, God has done this miraculous thing so that his people might fear him. And this is a, a different kind of fear than the enemies have of the Lord. This is a, a reverent fear. This is a fear that, yes, appreciates his holiness and power, but it does so in the context of relationship. The people are to fear the Lord, your God. This is not a God who is out there that we are terrified of because we don't know him. This is my God. And so this is the God who's on our side. And so I fear him all the more and I trust him even deeper. And so there's a, a, an emphasis here again on building the faith of the people as God acts. But did you notice as well that he did this in verse 24 so that all the peoples of the earth might know? And we saw this a little bit last week with Rahab, didn't we? That the news of God's word, work among his people and through his people had spread among their enemies. And so God continues to act in a way that other people will hear. And don't we see that exactly from the start of chapter 5? Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. You see, news of God's activity spreads and his enemies melt in fear. And that's one of the differences, isn't it? 
God's people are buoyed up in, as they fear the Lord, their God, and his enemies melt in fear against him. And so why did this happen? Well, this happened so the faith of God's people would be deepened and strengthened, yes. And also so that those outside of God's people would come to know the power and might of this God. They would acknowledge that he is the one and true God. And perhaps like Rahab, come to put their trust in him or stand as he judged them. And therefore not stand because of his judgment. And so what had happened? The people crossed the Jordan. How had that happened? God did a mighty thing. Why had it happened? To build faith in his people and to spread his fame and glory throughout the earth. And so this remarkable scene plays out for us in these two chapters. But if we can go back to where we started in thinking about remembering. Did you pick up in that passage the, the importance of the stones? These stones that were to be collected from the bed of the river Jordan, where the priests were standing with the ark. Twelve men, one from each tribe, was to pick one up, put it on his shoulder, and carry it to the other side. And then they were to make a memorial when they camped at Gilgal that night. We see that in verses 6 to 7 of chapter 4. And the point is true, and the point is repeated throughout, not only throughout Joshua, particularly throughout the New Testament, or the Old Testament. God calls his people to remember. Very often, and I think there's seven occasions throughout Joshua where he calls them to set up a stone, a stone pile to remember. And so that there's something physical that as people walk past and see this thing, it's a reminder to them of the incredible power and work of God. And the reality is when, when God does something remarkable, we are to remember it and remember it for generations. It's why they take these stones. It's why there is this physical marker for them. It's not just a physical thing that then takes on a significance of its own. No, it's the spiritual reality that that thing speaks of. This thing reminds us of what God did. This table reminds us of what God did. Those pile of stones remind us of what God did. And as I said at the beginning, it seems like that God knows our memories of his incredible works can sometimes be a bit unreliable. He knows that our memories aren't that good that our memories can fade, and so he gives us these things. It's a good spiritual practice to regularly remember his goodness. And whether that's here as we celebrate communion every week, whether that's as we gather with God's people and are reminded of his faithfulness, maybe that is setting a few reminders on your phone that randomly go off through the day to remind you to give thanks to God for what he's doing. Maybe it is some artwork that's hanging in your house that's got significant passages of scripture on it that reminds you every time you walk past of the faithfulness and goodness of God. Maybe it's journaling regularly so that you can go back and see what the Lord has done. Maybe it is actually going home and getting some decorative stones in your garden and building something. That'd be interesting. The point is not to create something fancy. The point is to remember the faithfulness of God. And so whatever way in which we can do that, it is a good spiritual practice for us to do. And I think very quickly as we finish, that there's two reasons why that is good to do. Why it is good in some ways to have physical things that remind us of the goodness and faithfulness of God. So why is the table here set the whole way through our service? So that we see it and remember the goodness of God. But there's two main reasons why that's a good thing. Firstly, it's, it is good to have something to remind us of the goodness of God so we can pass it on to the generations that follow. 
So, so is there something in your home? Is there something in your family group or your friendship group? Is there something that causes, particularly thinking in the family setting for a second, is there something that causes your children to ask, what is that? Why do we do that? What a wonderful opportunity that is then to show and share the goodness of God. That seems to be part of the reason why these stones were created, doesn't it? It's so that in the future, as verses six, say, verse 6 and 7 say of chapter 4, in future when your children ask you what do these stones mean, tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. What are these stones about? These stones about the reality that when the presence of God came to the Jordan, it piled up in a heap. That is the God who we worship and serve. And so what is there in your home that can help facilitate those discussions with those around you? And it is, it's wider than the family circle. It is within friends, within our church family. What do we do that helps us ask the question, what is that? Why do we do that? And, the, and that thing has to have the answer so that we remember and celebrate the goodness of God. And so for our little ones and our not so little ones, what is there? that can help you tell the story of God's faithfulness. And secondly, I think these physical reminders of God's activity are helpful for us when we're in a season of trial or we're in a season where, where circumstances cause us even more so to forget or to doubt the good promises of God. And then we see the pile of stones and we remember, yes, life is like this and I, I wish it wasn't. But this reminds me that God is good God is faithful. God's promises are unbreakable. And so he is with me even here. And so there's a reminder that even as we struggle, we can think of and cling to his past faithfulness, which then helps us appreciate his present reality as well as his future promises. And therefore, we continue. Though circumstances might not change, we continue with faith that is built up confidence that is grounded and obedience that is fueled faith that's built up confidence that's grounded and obedience that's fueled interestingly over the last couple of summers when we were looking at psalms um, and worked our way through some of the psalms there's a few psalms that do this for us beautifully and wonderfully psalm 77 is one example psalm 105 is another but if i could just read a couple of verses from psalm 77 that help us see while Asaph writes this psalm in the midst of terrible situation and terrible, and we know that because that's how the psalm starts. The psalm starts in what seems like a hopeless situation. And then in verse 11, well, let's go back to verse 10. Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples with your mighty arm and your, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. See, that, that's the power of remembering. That even in the midst of circumstances which seem to question God's goodness, you declare, no, I will remember. My God is good. His promises are secure. It might not make the situation change, but it certainly makes your perspective on it alter. So what happened in these chapters from Joshua? The people crossed the Jordan. How did that happen? God did it. God made it possible. Yes, the people had to follow his lead, 
But this was all, all the power came from God. And why did it happen? It happened so that his people would be built up and so that those not yet in his family would see and hear the goodness of God. And as we turn to consider the table, how helpful is it that we do this every week? Hopefully today, this passage has been a reminder of the importance of doing this when we gather, that we remember the goodness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We remember his sacrifice in our place. We remember the the forgiveness of sin that he offers because of his atoning death. We remember his resurrection power, which now fills each one of us who follow him. And so it is good that we stop and remember. Remember what he does, how he does it, and why. And may, as we do that, may he build our faith. And may those outside of this place, those outside of the family of God at present, come to see the glory and wonder of our good, unbreakable, promise-making God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word that challenges, rebukes, corrects, trains us in righteousness. Your word that, that by your spirit you speak to us still. We thank you, Father, for it. And I pray that, Lord, you would help us to know the truth and reality of the words that we read in these pages. Lord, we would, yes, celebrate the historic nature of these, but see your eternal truths. And to see the wonders that that you have done in your people in days gone by. And may that buoy our assurance and our confidence in you now, in what you're doing in our lives and what you're calling us to. And Father, we do pray that you'd help us to be people who hear your voice for the next step. And confident of your presence and your provision, we take that step. Would you help us, God? We want to be, be faithful to where you are leading. We want to see you at move, see you moving and at work among us and through us. And so would you come. And may all of that, Father, take place so that our faith and trust in you is grown. Yes, that we fear the Lord our God. But also, Father, that those not yet trusting in you would come to see their need for you. And therefore, when they turn in repentance to you, would they find grace and mercy and forgiveness. Thank you, God, that we can look back. And when we do, all we will see is your unbreakable promises, your faithfulness to your word, and the assurance that we can know that you are good and that you are with us and that you are continuing to work out your purposes. So thank you, Father. Be with us, we pray. Amen.